All right, well, let's pray, and uh, then let's jump into this word. Father, I do pray for, uh, I pray for this situation with, uh, with COVID. I pray that it will calm back down again, especially in parts of the world uh, where they have not uh, been va as vaccinated. Uh, in, uh, for instance, India. And uh, I pray for our friends and our family and those that are listening to me right now that they will be wise about their health, um, that they will not think that this is out of sight, out of mind, that they will not be scared, but that they will not be reckless either, and that they will make decisions that will be in keeping with how your spirit is leading them. And uh, I pray, Father, for uh, those that are having difficulty. I thank you that uh, Sue's air conditioning is getting fixed um, and uh, just pray that you'll open your word to us tonight so that we will be able to understand it. And I pray we'll receive it. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'm going to go ahead and read this chapter again. And you, those of you that were here were already here last week. If you're joining us on YouTube, um, I would recommend you to go to last week to get part one of this uh, because we started chapter five last week. And, you know, I'm just going to say again, this is not easy to deal with. Uh, what we're teaching and what we're going to say here is, is not easy teaching. Um, and it especially would not be popular in our, our world today. But I think that it's important. It's the Word of God. We're teaching verse by verse, so I'm not leaving anything out. And I'm just going to tell you what the Word of God says. Take it or leave it. You'd be wise to take it. All right? So here it is. Uh, this is verse one. And of course, Elijah, you have all those verses up there now. I, I put uh, verses six through 13 in the bin there too. This is the English Standard Version. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not even tolerated among pagans. For a man has his father's wife and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the power of the Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Verse six, this is where we'll be today. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. None of that's going to make sense unless you understand Passover. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers and idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother, we would say a Christian, if he or she is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. So, difficult, 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 right? So they were boasting because they thought that they were being 
uh, so tolerant, I suppose, of uh, having someone like this and allowing them to be in their church. Um, and again, we, can find, we could find parallels to this today. I do not believe, as I said last week, that this means that you are to refuse to have communication or conversation with somebody who is in sin. But what the apostle is clearly teaching here is that we are not to uh, have any type of regular fellowship with someone who is not struggling, but who is openly um, participating in and even promoting sin. That's what we're talking about here. So we all struggle with a variety of different temptations. Um, as long as it remains a temptation and as long as we continue to struggle, then uh, that's the way it's going to be in this world. In fact, I, I posted uh, this little statement uh, talking about uh, when a, a butterfly is in its cocoon and if as the butterfly starts to come out of the cocoon, if you were to help it and cut the cocoon, you would kill the butterfly because the process of pushing out of that pupus, that cocoon at the end of the time that obviously it has to have developed to where it's you know ready to come out of there. But if you were to help it and you think you're helping it, you would actually interfere with what God has built into nature, which is as the butterfly pushes against that pupus, that cocoon, to get out of it, it is uh, creating circulation in its new wings, right? And so as it pushes out, pushes out, pushes out, and then stretches those wings, then it is enabled to fly. But if you were to help it and cut it out of the cocoon, you would kill it. That's kind of a different way of thinking, isn't it? Because we want to run around and rescue everyone. Now, I'm not advocating be mean to everybody and don't help people. Um, there's this tendency to want to jump to one extreme or the other. But simply because someone is struggling doesn't mean that God has forsaken them, um, that the worst has happened to them. We're kind of in a cocoon, if you will, the entire time we're on planet Earth. I mean, we're struggling and learning and growing through all of the difficulties that we go through. Um, and, you know, uh, as I said two weeks ago, uh, as you struggle through these things and as you, you know, uh, some people worry. I don't worry. I complain. <laughs> right? I mean, I really do. I am a big whiner. And uh, I... Yeah, I try not to complain to people because it, honestly, it's good to have someone that you can talk to. So don't get me wrong. But the things that I would complain about, nobody else can help me with, in, right? So there's no point. Complaining and whining and worrying are all worthless unless you turn it into prayer. And as I said two Sundays ago, worriers make great prayer warriors. Now, I'm not sure that complainers make great prayer warriors because typically I'm just complaining about what's irritating me. But you know what? Um, if you struggle with the Lord, 
I want you to consider the example of Jacob and his wrestling with the theophany, right? The angel of the Lord at the river Jabbok. And he ended up with, a, with his hip out of joint, but he would not let go of the Lord. Hey, man, hey, don't let go. Be honest with God, struggle with God, don't kick him to the curb, don't think he doesn't care, he does care, he cares enough to struggle with you. But that doesn't mean he's gonna take it away from you. So, you know, let's take it into another arena. I have all these little kids. You know, I'm a far better karate, uh, Bible teacher than I am a karate instructor, and yet my karate class is far fuller than this <laughs> tonight. So I don't know what that portends, but nonetheless, I had a lot of kids there last night. And we had to drag all the mats down the stairs because the air conditioning is out upstairs at the rock, something that they did not tell me before we moved from there, but they're letting us use the downstairs. But I was teaching those kids how to struggle against an attacker on the ground. And they don't know what to do. Typically, you know, if you ever watch kids fight in particular, bigger kid pushes a little kid to the ground, right? They want to wrestle them, they want to throw them down. And so I'm trying to teach them how to fight their way, uh, fight the attacker away while they're on the ground. They, but they're going to have to struggle. Well, you know, half of them just didn't get it. So I literally am taking their feet and slamming their feet into me because you're on the ground. You roll your knees up and you kick, right? Somebody comes near you, you kick. And, you know, I'm like, oh, ow, ow, you know, so, but I'm getting them to say, hey, fight me, hit me. It's okay, right? I can take it. Hmm, maybe God does that. He wants, he's not gonna, grace doesn't mean God does it all for you. It means that he accepts you as you are. Now he's gonna take you to the place he wants you to be. That's a very important distinction. And that is a process. And that involves us going through a lot of difficulty and struggle. And the Apostle Paul certainly did. So with that in mind, we're not just struggling with our own issues. We're also struggling with other people. Now, I want us to get out of our mind that the Apostle Paul is showing hatred toward this man that was in sexual immorality. And again, as it says, he was sexually involved with his father's wife. This is not his mother. This would have been his stepmother. We don't know whether she was divorced from his father or not. Doesn't say, right? It says his father's wife, so they might not have even been divorced. Uh, we're not, you know, it's, it's not entirely clear here whether they were actually living together, but they were certainly together to the degree that it was very public that they were intimately involved. So it's likely that she left or the father didn't want her around. And so she just moved in with the son and took up with him. And they just start playing house, okay? And the church was just like, oh, well, you know, we're free, we're, dis we're tolerant. Let's just go ahead and deal with that. So we need to love people, but you're not helping anybody by looking the other way, or even worse, approving a sexually immoral relationship. Now, you may not be the one to confront them. 
But the Apostle Paul is not looking at one person to confront this man. This man is clearly a part of this church community. And he's telling the community to officially, 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 I was going to run to the next word, which is excommunicate. Now, they don't use this word here. Um, it's a specialized term, but it basically means what the Apostle Paul says. Remove this person from your fellowship. He doesn't, he should not be in good standing with you because he is openly flaunting grace. He is, uh, God hasn't changed his mind when it concerns sexual issues. God designed men, God designed women, and history and time doesn't change the way we're designed. Culture changes the way it looks at men, women, gender, all of these different things. And you can see that. Okay, so consider the founding fathers of our country. These are all men wearing wigs. Were they transgender? No, that was just, that was appropriate at that point in time for men to wear wigs. And there were, there were certain reasons for that as far as cleanliness and uh, so forth. But f f uh, the French had a strong influence on fashion. And this is why, you know, you have men with frilly cuffs and, you know, a, a lot of things that men today would not wear. Sadly, rather than say that a, to be masculine doesn't just mean that you wear certain clothes, we have said, well, no, I would rather wear these certain clothes, so I must be feminine. I, I think we've gotten things confused, is what has happened. Um, but the standard that we look to is the Lord, and when it concerns matters of sexual, of a sexual nature, um, God created men and God created women, and while fashion will change, right, uh, what we associate with masculinity and what we associate with femininity will change, that God designed one man and one woman to be in a relationship for life. That's the design. That's the intent. Now, that doesn't mean that we've all been able to follow through with that. As anybody who's been in a relationship knows, it takes two. And you can't make that other person do anything. You can try. And, you know, I mean, you've probably been a part of this, of just trying mightily to make it work. It doesn't always work. You do your best. But see, what I want to do is the will of God, not my will. And I do want to cry out to the Lord, and I want Him to help, and I want Him to, you know, but if you're in a relationship with somebody that's abusive, if you're in a relationship with somebody that is committing adultery with someone else, you have a reason to get out of that relationship, okay? And we're not going to get into all the details of, you know, what constitutes uh, a legitimate divorce and all of this stuff. But as we're going to see in chapter 7, the Apostle Paul doesn't recommend that you get remarried. Now, I don't think that that means that it's completely out of the question, but what I too often see is someone who has, you know, one foot in one relationship, but trying to get out of it, and they already stepped the other foot into a new relationship. I can't tell you, well, I could tell you. I can tell you of two prominent cases where 
young men at that time, got involved with young women at that time who were married. Now, I don't think that they were involved sexually, but they were already jumping into that relationship because in both of those instances, the previous marriage was going downhill. And in one instance, there was uh, adultery. In another, uh, uh, in another instance, uh, there, was, uh, there was some other difficulty that was there. Uh, there was actually, in both instances, it was adultery, uh, now that I think about it. Um, but nobody wants to give this time, right? We need, to, we need to give these situations time so that we can move forward, so that we can strengthen our relationship with the Lord, so that we can heal. And rather than do that, what ends up happening is we just, we want to feel better. So we jump out of this relationship and jump into this relationship. And so, yeah, one way or the other, God's standard is God's standard. So um, in this passage, the Apostle Paul likens removal of a brazenly sinful Christian from the congregation to removing leaven. What's leaven from a lump of dough? What's leaven? Yeast, right? So have you ever made bread? I've tried to make bread. I'm not very... Yes. You remember the, I don't know if these are popular anymore. Do you remember the bread machines? Mm-hmm. You basically put the ingredients. I mean, these things did it all, including all cook the bread. <laughs> like, what's the fun of that? You know, so, but yeah, yeast makes bread rise. The Israelites, in order to memorialize their, um, uh, their deliverance from Egypt, every year and still to this day have a festival of unleavened bread leading up to Passover. And they eat unleavened bread during this seven-day period leading up to Passover. Um, One of the things that they do is to scour their homes and make sure that there's no yeast anywhere. So obviously, yeast came to represent something to them, uh, and that something is sin, right? They were required to scour their homes prior to Passover to then to get rid of any of this yeast as a, a way of saying, we, we want to be ready to worship the Lord. So originally, the lack of yeast in Passover bread was symbolic of how quickly the Lord delivered them. So, you know, that's instructive to us. Sometimes it seems that to take forever for the Lord to act. But then once he acts, he acts. And we can kind of get used to, you know, things being the way they are. But when the Lord says go, we go. That's what we gotta do. We gotta pay attention to the Lord and be obedient at that point in time. So uh, Passover represents the time when the death angel passed over the land of Egypt and took the life of every firstborn, except in the homes of the Jewish people who uh, slaughtered a lamb and painted the doorposts of their home, the lintel and the doorpost, with the blood of the lamb. And so then the death angel, rather than coming down into their home and taking the life of the firstborn, passed over. He saw the blood and passed over. Christ is called our Passover lamb, amen? 
the blood of Christ is applied to the doorposts of your of your your heart and so I physically die but I have this gift of eternal life that so in effect the death angel passes over me and I hope that is the case for you as well right so just imagine that the Jewish people after waiting all of this time being in Egypt for uh, you know 400 plus years and then being enslaved and crying out to the Lord and then going through this period of 10 plagues, they get to the last plague and the death angel is coming down, takes the life of every firstborn, including, by the way, the firstborn of the cattle, but passes over the homes of the Israelites who were what? Believing and obedient. So you can say, well, I believe, but I don't want to do all that blood stuff then you don't believe. If you believe, you'll obey. Well, yeah, but that's just weird and that's just a lot of work. And, you know, I, we, we've heard the story, so it doesn't seem weird to us today, but don't you think that might have seemed strange to them? Sure. Um, you know, well, that's offensive. I'm not going to kill a lamb. I, I, I don't want to do that. But I believe. No, you don't, because you won't obey. So, all of their firstborn were preserved, including the firstborn of their livestock, okay? Um, so then Pharaoh immediately, immediately sends them out. Leave, get out of Egypt. Once you're gone, uh, the scripture says in, in uh, Exodus that uh, they went to the Egyptians and asked them for uh, money, essentially, and so it said they, they plundered the Egyptians. I mean, they bundled up and they got out of Dodge like the next morning. Now, they'd been preparing all along, presumably, because God said he was going to deliver them and these plagues kept hammering and hammering and hammering. But they did not know when this was going to happen, so they didn't have time to put the yeast in their bread and let it rise. Imagine someone said, well, sure, I, I want to participate in this deliverance. I don't want to be a slave anymore, but I need to make some more preparation. And that's what putting the yeast in the, the bread represents. It represents human effort. You can't help God save you. Did you hear? You can't help God save you. You can't save yourself. What you can do is cooperate and obey when the Lord tells you. So that's what this, uh, this yeast represented. They didn't have time to allow their bread to rise and waiting to do so rather than obeying the Lord's command to leave Egypt would have been ridiculous and it would have been sinful. So the yeast could be thought of as representing rebellion against God, uh, representing self-reliance rather than reliance on the Lord. So God made a way for the children of Israel to leave Egypt and they had to do so immediately. Perhaps we can see the idea also of pride here because the scripture says that pride puffs up, right? Well, well, um, and that's, mm, right? And so this yeast represents pride that is sown, okay? Now, there are occasions when leaven is used as a positive. Jesus said the kingdom of God is like leaven being spread, right? Because it has an effect on the, on the whole lump. Um, 
So let's go back up and see what uh, the Apostle Paul says, because he, he uses the term leaven over and over again, but he's referring to this bread that would have been used for the Passover, which you always use unleavened bread. Uh, by the way, that's why we use most often matzah, but at other times I've used other forms. I've used lavash before. Uh, I've used pita bread before but it's always unleavened bread because we're memorializing the fact that when Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, it was actually at Passover. Now, he didn't officially say, you must use unleavened bread in the Lord's Supper, but most churches and ours included will because we wanna continue that tradition of using that unleavened bread and remembering where this comes from. So he says, do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? So imagine a lump of dough and you just sprinkle a little leaven and a little part of it. And as it's mixed, it's probably not gonna cause that whole lump to just rise real big, but it's still gonna have the effect, isn't it? It's gonna work, it's, there's gonna be a chemical reaction, it's gonna work its way through. So he says, cleanse out the old leaven. As I said, that would be remembering what the Jewish people would do every year and still do, scouring their houses for, uh, for yeast, so that you may be a new lump as you really are, unleavened. So he's saying, now the bread represents you and I. And we are a part of this new covenant. We no longer are self-reliant. We're no longer puffed up. We're no longer, and, and I think the idea of pride and being puffed up could be validated because he began by saying your boasting is not good. Right? You're, he told them they're arrogant and you're boasting, pride, puffing up. No, we don't have that, right? We're, we're to be humble, not proud. So yeah, we're the new lump of dough that is unaffected by leaven, unaffected by willful, self-reliant, arrogant, sin, rebellion, right? Then he, he shifts over to what I just said. Um, for Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. And so there you have Christ as the Passover lamb. And I believe this is the only place that that is mentioned. But when was Jesus crucified? On a Friday, it was during Passover. Of um. Passover. They were eating a Passover meal. That, so Thursday at sundown, they gather together and they eat the Passover meal. They're celebrating Passover. So in John, it appears that Jesus is crucified exactly as the official Passover lamb was being sacrificed in the temple. It's a very big deal. So, yeah, this, is, this might seem like a passing reference, but uh, it's an important teaching. Then he says, let us therefore celebrate the festival. What would that be? Well, that's worship, okay? Not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. And that's what we're getting at here. We're not trying to be mean to people. We just have to be a pure people, not a... Uh, an arrogant people, 
not a sanctimonious, self-righteous people. Um, so the symbol of yeast is something that works its way through bread is also appropriate as an analogy. This man's sin and acceptance of it would work its way through the Corinthian community, impacting everyone. Sexual immorality was a big problem in Corinth. As William Barclay observes, and as we mentioned when we started this study uh, a couple of months ago, um, I think I may have quoted this at that point in time, but here's an extended quote from William Barclay about Corinth. The very name Corinth was synonymous with debauchery, and there was one source of evil in the city which was known all over the civilized world. Above the isthmus, toward the hill of the Acropolis, towered, <laughs> above the isthmus, towered the hill of the Acropolis, and on it stood the great temple of Aphrodite. Who was Aphrodite in Greek and Roman mythology? The goddess of love, right? Fertility, yes. Okay. <laughs> to that temple of Aphrodite, there were attached 1,000 priestesses who were sacred prostitutes. And in the evenings, they came down from the Acropolis and plied their trade on the streets of Corinth. Eventually, it became the subject of a Greek proverb. Here's the Greek proverb from Paul's time. It is not every man who can afford a journey to Corinth. In addition to these cruder sins, there flourished far more subtle and little-known vices, which had come with the traders and the sailors from the ends of the earth, until Corinth became a synonym not only for wealth, luxury, drunkenness, and debauchery, but also for moral filth. Here we are, 21st century America, and we're right back to Rome again. We're justifying every form of moral filth. Now, I'm not saying we, as in those of us in this room or those of us uh, paying attention on uh, Facebook and YouTube and watching this, but I'm saying that that is the case increasingly among those of us in the Western world. It's simply uh, a part of our culture. The so-called sexual revolution of the 60s did not set us free from anything. Uh, right, it has set loose a tremendous amount of uh, of pain and suffering, and that hasn't ceased. So, to allow this man to live in sin with his stepmother was to give approval to sexual immorality as a whole. They had to remove him if he refused to leave her, and that would purify the community. In his comment to this passage, once again, William Barclay quotes another to make the following point. The 19th century Scottish historian and moral teacher Thomas Carlyle said that we must see the infinite beauty of holiness, that is separating ourselves out from the sinful world, and the infinite damnability of sin. When we cease to take a serious view of sin, we are in a perilous position. It is not a question of being critical and condemnatory. It is a question of being wounded and shocked. And that's indeed what he said as in he, Paul, he said, you're arrogant. Shouldn't you be mourning? He didn't say, you know, cross your arms and throw out your chest and say, huh, what are you doing? We're better than that. 
No, he said, you should be mourning that this is happening. And this is what this Thomas Carlyle is saying as he's quoted here or referred to by William Barclay. It was sin that crucified Jesus Christ. It was also to free us from sin that he died. No Christian man or woman can take an easygoing view of it. And sadly, that's exactly what happens. In fact, you can get yourself in quite a bit of trouble. Uh, you know, I'm no influencer, so I'm not gonna get in trouble for putting this on YouTube and Facebook. But, you know, if I had a million followers or so, um, and I were to come out against homosexuality, same-sex marriage, transgenderism, and whatever, then suddenly it would be construed as hate speech, even though I don't hate any of these people. And as I've told you guys many times, I am really remarkably unconcerned about what people do in their private lives and in their bedrooms. It's what that means when we seek to promote it, when we seek to normalize it as we're doing in our country today, right? Um, so we need to be, as the church was in the first century, different, separated out. And this is what, one of the main things that distinguished the church in the first century from the world around them was their sexual morality and also their willingness to care for the weak and the sick, their willingness to care for babies that had been uh, left out and exposed. So in Rome, apparently, there was a hill where babies were left to die. And why would that happen? Well, if the parents didn't want the baby, then they just took it out there and left it to, to die. They exposed it to the elements and let it die. And this could happen if uh, you know the, the man wanted a boy and it was a girl. No, don't want it. Take it out there. Well, that just sounds terrible. Do you really think that the way we practice abortion today is any different whatsoever than that on the basis of convenience? Right? Um, yeah, it's, we're no different. And that means that Christians, those of us who genuinely follow Jesus, need to be like these first century Christians. Listen to what Barclay observes uh, about this, uh, this issue, the difference between Christians and the Gentile world. The Gentile world did not know the meaning of chastity. What is chastity? Purity. Right, sexual purity, one man, one woman life. Um, so I keep myself pure until I'm married. And then I only have a sexual relationship with my wife. They took their pleasure when and where they wanted it. Gosh, that just sounds so much like today. We're so backward looking, aren't we? We think we're so forward looking and we're just backward looking. It was so hard for those in the Christian church to escape the influence of this attitude. They were like a little island surrounded on every side by a sea of idolatry. They had come so newly into Christianity. It was so difficult to unlearn the practices which generations of loose living had made part of their lives. And yet, if the church was to be kept pure, they must say a final goodbye to the old ways. Hmm. Yeah, we should. So we must say goodbye to the old, excuse me, the old ways. Um, we're in the midst today of a great sexual reversal right? It's not a revolution. It's a reversal. We're turning back to that time period. 
and Jesus followers are tempted, but we must not turn back like the rest of the world. For that would be, as Peter observes, and the proverb states, like a dog that returns to its vomit, or like a sow that is washed goes back to wallowing in the mud. So you've seen that. You've had puppies, haven't you? They throw up and then they go back and lick it up, right? And they do other things too. They eat their poop. Yeah. Um, yeah, I've had, I've had plenty of dogs and it's just disturbing to me when they go and eat their poop. I just, uh, and then they have poop breath and they want to come and lick you and, and people let their dogs lick their faces. You know, you do what you're going to do, but dogs are not licking my face. I'm sorry. They lick all sorts of things on their body that I don't want anywhere near my face. So I love dogs. Don't get me wrong. I love cats too. I've had plenty of both. I'm not either a dog or a cat person. I actually like both. I think they're cool. But I don't let them lick my face. I most certainly don't let them put their tongue in my mouth. And I've seen people that do that. That's, I'm sorry, no, no, no. My dog is really very good at doing that. He, he would be like just talking or something. Just, yeah, and then they, they do it real fast. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so, you know, we could get into the sexual sins of our day but take any of the letters in LGBT. We want to be compassionate. That's just an acronym for sexual immorality, right? Now that doesn't mean if a woman is same-sex attracted that uh, they have committed any sort of sin. The attraction is not the sin. The temptation is not the sin, right? G. L-G, gay, right? That doesn't mean that a man that is same-sex attracted uh, is automatically in sin. And could there be something that's inside of us that's, that's broken as the result of family issues? Or could there be some sort of, uh, you know, other proclivity or component that makes uh, certain people, uh, you know, more likely to fall for this? Sure, all of these things. We're living in a broken world. We're living in a lost world. That doesn't mean that we just follow the lost world. I follow Jesus, not the lost world, okay? Um, you know, the transgender issue, again, this is separating gender from sex and then going back and identifying with uh, issues, you know, like how you dress and these sorts of things that really typify the old view of male or female, I mean, it's, you're speaking out of both sides of your face. You say, well, I, you know, I just, I think sex and gender are separated. Yes, you could be born a man, but your gender could be, you know, any one of all these others, but you know, you're really a woman. Well, how do you determine that? Well, I want to wear makeup and I want to wear dresses. Okay. I know plenty of women that don't wear dresses and don't like makeup. Does that mean they're men? I, I just thought, you know, well, no, I, I just, I like to keep my home neat and I like to decorate and so I just, I, you know, I, I'm just more feminine. I, okay, but I don't think that that's necessary. There, there are men that are more like Jacob. There are men that are more like Esau. Do you know the story? Esau, manly man, hairy, me hunt, me eat meat, me bring meat back to daddy, uh, and daddy like Esau. And Jacob's like, you know, I, I like to stay indoors. I don't have a lot of hair in my body. I'm not saying he talked like that, but I'm just, 
Maybe he did. He was definitely a mama's boy, right? Did Jacob say, you know what? I just think, I, I think I'm a woman. Oh, you're just different. It's okay. Some, some boys are, 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 you know, they have qualities that we associate with, with the feminine side, okay? That doesn't mean they're women. Can we just please stop with these stereotypes? It's interesting to me that we're wanting to love on people that have these issues, but we're just reinforcing and validating stereotypes. Stop, right? If you've got a little boy and he wants to play with dolls, that doesn't mean he's really a little girl. You don't know why. Let him play with dolls. It's okay. You got a little girl and she wants to play with trucks and she wants to run around outside and climb trees. That doesn't mean she's really a boy. It's okay. We all just need to get over these stereotypes and figure out that the idea of being a male and a man and the idea of being a female and being a woman is much bigger than just these little social stereotypes. What kind of clothes you wear, whether you wear makeup and whether you want to decorate your house and, and uh, you know, I don't know, cook or do flowers or, you know, whatever, whatever your stereotype is. All right. Um, so nonetheless, yeah, this will make me, I'm sure, super popular on social media. Nobody will see it anyway, so no big deal, right? Um, we need to treat all people with love and courtesy and kindness and compassion. That's what we need to do. But when somebody hears the preaching of the gospel and comes to Jesus, they come out of their past, they come out of their proclivities, they come out of their, you know, their personal um, issues and sins and so forth, and they just seek to follow Jesus and recognize that they're gonna find their identity in Christ, not in some social construct, all right? So then, in verses nine through 13, which will conclude this, and boy, am I gonna have to go fast, he says, I wrote, I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not at all mean the immoral people of this world. And then he goes on to describe that this is not just about sexual issues. Or oh, with the covetous, that means I want what you have. Swindlers, that means I'm gonna, I'm gonna cheat you out of what you have. Idolaters, right? So back then that meant just worshiping statues, but it could mean worshiping your car or your football team. For then you would have to go out of the world. So you're gonna to have to have relationships with people that call themselves whatever and validate their, you know, their lifestyle choices. But that doesn't mean you reject them or refuse to have an appropriate type of relationship with them. But actually, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother. And again, as I said, when I read this previously, this means a Christian. If he is an immoral person, this would be sexually immoral, or covetous, again, you want what other people have, or an idolater, worshiping something other than God, or a reviler, oh, whatever, I'm making fun of you, or a drunkard, oh, there you go, that would apply to drugs as well. So, yeah, that's a big one too, right? Or a swindler, not even, he says, the Apostle Paul, this is difficult for us, okay? I'm just gonna tell you, this is hard for us. He says, don't even eat with these people. See, table fellowship was a big thing for them, right? But what you have to understand is 
when you remain in fellowship with someone who is calling themselves a Christian and actively involved in an immoral lifestyle, you are giving them tacit approval. That's how they're going to read it. Tacit approval for that lifestyle. And so I have to be willing to say you cannot pursue and promote immorality and say that you are a Christian. What does Christian mean? Christ little Christ. So what I've said for years. Christian means little Christ. So if there is little in you that is like Christ, are you really a Christian? Right? Repentance is as necessary as faith. That means I turn my back on what I want and my old lifestyle choices, and I seek to follow Jesus. And by the way, there are plenty of examples and plenty of books out there regarding people who have come out of LGBT and turned to Christ or turned back to Christ. So this is not an anomaly. This is not strange. This is not mean and hateful, right? You either take Jesus seriously or you don't take Jesus seriously. And for those who would say, well, Jesus didn't say anything about those issues. Jesus validated what is taught about God's design for male and female. He said, have you not heard that he who made them from the beginning made them male and female? That's Genesis chapter two. So a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave unto his wife and the two will become one flesh. Jesus just invalidated the entirety of the LGBT construct by validating what Genesis teaches about God's design for man and woman. I'm not loving someone and helping someone by assisting them and carrying on in a lifestyle choice that is ultimately destructive to them, right? So what he's saying is, you seek to have a relationship with someone, you seek to redirect them. Um, if you have a healthy relationship and you're not, you know, you're not trying to be uh, in any way censorious toward them, but you're willing to say, what you're doing is not God's plan. And that's the way I choose to say it. Rather than saying, don't you know that's sin? What I'd rather do is kind of point to the positive side and say, this is not God's plan for any person. It's not God's plan for you. If you want God's plan for your life, then you need to turn away from this. But how do we handle it if there's somebody in church, in our community? Um, you don't have to automatically run to the pastor and then the pastor you know, points out that what they're doing is wrong and says, now you either get it right or I'm kicking you out of the church. No, this is what you do. And this is what Jesus said. This is Matthew 18, 15 through 17. And this, by the way, is in our covenant as a church. This is what we've agreed to do. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him. If he listens, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you. So how would this apply? Well, first of all, Jesus here is addressing someone who has sinned against you and you seek to make it right. But if you see someone in the community that is doing something that you know is wrong, 
then you go and you very kindly and courteously and gently and with love, but directly, let them know that this is not what scripture teaches and this is not what we're supposed to be doing. If they don't wanna to listen to you, then find one or two others that you think they would be willing to meet with and then sit down and meet with them, right? What if, that, what if they don't listen there and they just go on? If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. So in our church, that would mean that you come and talk to me, right? I don't want you to stand up in the middle of the worship service and say, you know, we went to this person and they're still doing this and what do y'all think? That's not what it means. It's not what we're gonna do. You come and talk to me, right? And then if we need to make a formal move to disfellowship them, then we have a meeting. We talk about what's going on and people vote them out. That's the way it works. In other churches, it might work differently, okay? Um, but I don't seek to hurt people. I don't seek to embarrass people. I don't seek to put myself above anybody but I need the church to know that we're gonna take action in these situations. And we've only had to do this a couple of times. And in one of those instances, I think that everybody in this church is on good standing uh, with one person. And this was really, really early in the days of our church. And then the other person, I'm still praying for them to repent and come back, right? Um, so as we conclude, Ask yourself, are you willing to follow Jesus even if it means losing a friend? Are you willing to make the difficult decision to hold yourself and others accountable for open rebellion and sin? It may be tough, but we need to do it and the church needs to see it. We need to speak the truth in love and then act sometimes with tough love and realize that we're not doing anybody any favors by tolerating sin, okay? So this wasn't the most pleasant of lessons, I realize, but we teach the entirety of scripture. So um, pray and let the Lord move in your life. And yeah, the first person, as Jesus said, that I need to deal with is me. I gotta take the splinter out of my eye before I go try and, or take the log out of my eye before I go trying to take splinters out of other people's eyes, right? So yeah, let each of us do that. All right, so God bless those of you that joined us on uh, YouTube and Facebook and uh, come to church Sunday if you can.